Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, February 4th, we are studying Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Jesus has been doing one miracle after another, building up to that climax we saw at the end of chapter 5 in raising Jairus' daughter. But things take a sudden and dark turn when Jesus goes back to the town where he grew up. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchie, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me, Tim. All right, let's talk context. I laid out a little bit. We've seen Jesus doing a lot of miracles in the previous chapter. Things turn a little bit here and, and don't continue maybe the way you think they might. Although, if you've been paying attention, some of the rejection we're going to see in this chapter shouldn't be too surprising. Uh, what do we need to know about the context going into these verses today? So, when I uh, opened up and, and looked at this passage, um, I was Reminded, if you go back to chapter three, if you go back a little further in the context of Mark, you see an episode that's really similar to the one we read today. Uh, it's chapter three, verses 20 through 21. So Jesus has just sent out the, uh, or called the 12 apostles, excuse me, and he goes back to his home, Mark tells us, and there's this big crowd around him gathering. They could, couldn't even eat, he says, but then as family comes out um, and says he's out of his mind. So in a, in a way, they were embarrassed of Jesus. Um, they really, it was, it was an open public rejection of what he was doing. And then right after that, he's accused of being possessed by a demon um, by the scribes who come out and accuse him of this. So uh, we see even back in chapter three, this theme of rejection is building and building and building as Jesus is doing more and more incredible things. And then we get to the immediate context right before a passage is really helpful because it, it shows one of the big themes of um, this passage in 6 verse 1 through 13, it talks about faith, uh, not just the faith of the woman with the flow of blood. Your faith has healed you, Jesus said, but then he really uh, he really brings it to a head when he gets to this 12-year-old girl who has died. Um, the message comes to him, the girl is dead, don't bother him anymore. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. So that theme of faith comes here. Um, and you see also some rejection here too, not maybe as pointed as we saw in chapter three or as we're going to see now. But um, what does five verse 40 say? Say after Jesus says she's not dead, but sleeping, they laugh at him, uh, which is a, you know, that's a rejection of what he's doing. Um, and then what does he go and do? He, um, he raises her from the dead. Um, and it's almost like they think Jesus is a false prophet here. 
but he says, I am going to back up what I say with what I do, which is what we see continually through this gospel. Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, this um, fulfillment of all the prophecies that have preceded him, and then backing it up with these miracles. And then finally, if you if you follow after 6 verses 1 through 13, uh, I believe you mentioned it one point, uh, Pastor Tim, uh, Mark sometimes likes to sandwich events, one between another, a couple of events, uh, to really teach us something about who Jesus is or what discipleship is about. So that's exactly what we see going on here. After Jesus sends out the 12 at the end of our reading, uh, what what is the story that comes right after that? It's the death of John the Baptist. Um, And then following that, the apostles apostles return. So um, the message of God's reign is going out not only in Christ, but in the people whom he sends. And what is that met with? Um, Sometimes it's met with uh, faith, but sometimes it's met with unbelief. And sometimes that unbelief leads to tragic, difficult situations like John the Baptist's death. But um, that's not the end of the story, as we're going to see eventually when Jesus is risen from the dead. Uh, those who follow Jesus will experience hardship and suffering, but um, ultimately there is also forgiveness and vindication and ultimately eternal life. So that is to say when Jesus is rejected in this reading, um, it's not something that should surprise us. Um, it should concern us, certainly, but... Um, we see Jesus' rejection, we see faith on the part of some people, we see a difficult situation for the disciples, but we also see that um, those who Jesus sends out have the word going with them, have the authority of Jesus going with them. Um, And that's really what shapes a lot of what we see in this reading in 6 verses 1 through 13. It's been a while since we've seen the complete outright rejection of Jesus like we will see here. As you said, the laughter in the previous text is an example of some rejection. We saw some rejection when Jesus was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and the herdsmen and the townspeople didn't like what he did in terms of casting out the demons. We've seen the disciples themselves be afraid, but you really have to go back, as you were saying, into chapter three and chapter two, where you really find the rejection and opposition of Jesus really building and growing. And that theme is going to come back. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. We should be concerned by it. We've seen it before in the gospel, according to St. Mark. I appreciate how you brought out his family back in chapter three and, and Mark there. It's one of those moments where you're encountering people in the gospel that you would expect to be close to Jesus. And in fact, they aren't. And we're going to get another taste of that here in chapter six. And then too, the the idea of the sandwiches in Mark. You and I got to talk about this in person not that long ago, and I I do see this. We're going to split this sandwich up in the way we talk about it here on Sharper Iron, but I think we're getting the first part today, the middle, which is the sending of the 12, and then in tomorrow's text when we talk about the martyrdom of John the Baptist, that's kind of the, the sandwich. So what does it mean to be sent out as Jesus' disciple? The rejection accounts on either side of it, I think, are going to give us a, a taste of it. That's part of what Mark is getting at in the way that he structures it. And I think that fits with some of the things we've talked about. You know, again, we don't know exactly the situation of the people Mark would have written to initially, but there's a decent chance they would have been in Rome facing some persecution. And so a text like this is going to do a lot for those people and for us still today. 
as Christians, mm-hmm. those sent out by Jesus. Any further comments on on context, any of those overarching things before we jump in? No, I, I think that all makes a lot of sense. It's I think it's basically just Mark, in a way, trying to shape our expectations to be faithful, um, not trying to discourage us, um, but tell us, here's what you can expect, um, both difficult things and good things as Jesus' disciples. So we've got two scenes, really, in today's text. I'm going to split it up like that as we read it. We're going to start with Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. That's verses 1 through 6 of Mark chapter 6. Pastor Heckman, the, the text starts, Jesus goes away from there. He's just been at Jairus' house. And Mark tells us that Jesus came to his hometown. And we've talked here on, on Sharper Iron that for Jesus' Galilean ministry, his ministry in the northern part of Israel, that Capernaum tends to serve as his home base. But I don't think that that's the town that Mark means here. Where does where is this taking place in Mark chapter six? So this would be the town of of Nazareth, uh, where Jesus would identify with you know as more of a hometown. Like this is where I grew up. Um, this is where people know me best. Uh, so really, it's interesting how he doesn't say Nazareth. He actually says hometown, which would imply. Um, some more social implications. You know, why did he say hometown instead of Nazareth? Well, these are the people who really know him. Like, this is the kid that we saw grow up in the car. You know, this is just, uh, you know, this is Jesus. You know, this is, we know him. He's not what he says he is. Um, And the interesting thing that one of the commentaries I read pointed out is this is really Jesus growing up in what was known as an honor-shame culture, which I'd never, I mean, you hear those terms tossed around, but I'd never thought of it as, you know, really shaping the context of where Jesus is trying to heal people and uh, proclaim the reign of God here. So these people are, um, you know, they're saying this guy is the son of Mary, which is also another phrase that gives you a little insight into what their attitude was. Um, That was actually a slur on Jesus' parentage, uh, because typically if you— if you were going to refer to someone by their family lineage, it would usually be from the father's side, even if their father was dead, which I don't think Joseph was dead, but even if he were, they still say he's the son of Mary saying, uh, you know, is this guy actually legitimate? Cause we're not sure about his, you know, family origins, you know, they're a little suspicious and um, they're trying to discredit Jesus on the basis of this. And then even, you look at what was Jesus' occupation, it was a carpenter, right? So um, you would work with wood and stone in that kind of occupation. And 
carpenters actually weren't looked upon with a whole lot of honor or respect because um, they would have to move from town to town to make a living. So they're leaving their family and they're, um, they're really kind of shamed because of this. You can't even stay with your family and make a living here. Um, so all these things are kind of stacked up against Jesus. And, you know, we see, uh, we see this in TV shows, even movies nowadays, where they, they talk about something called a social credit, where it's it's fictional, but it's maybe not as fictional as we think, where um, they imagine a world where if you impress people, if you have the right connections, uh, your social standing goes up, and then it hits against you if you're not with the right people, don't have the right background. But that's all to say, this is the context that Jesus is growing up around and he comes back here and that's really the heart of the rejection is um you're you're not who you say you are because we we know you your background uh doesn't allow for you to do um the things you say you can do um so what's the good news here um i i think this is just as pertinent in our culture as it was in jesus culture as uh being in the family of god being in the reign of god has nothing to do with social status it has nothing to do with your looks your occupation your wealth any of these things even where what family you come from uh that doesn't limit uh the scope of god's grace um the only factor that uh, has anything to do with your standing in god's kingdom is the grace of god in christ which over you in the waters holy baptism uh that's what gives you standing in god's kingdom it's probably not going to be uh of much substance in the culture <laughs> uh you're not going to get into big social circles or you know exclusive places because you say hey i'm baptized but you know that's of little consequence as jesus shows a series like what counts is god's grace and um, you are never totally alienated or isolated or alone when you're in God's family. Uh, so it's, it's, you see a hard episode here for Jesus. I'm sure he was, you know, it says he marveled at their unbelief. And um, I'm sure it was difficult for him to experience this, knowing who he was and what he could do. But still, that did not stop him from spreading the reign of God. Um, and that should not... Uh, necessarily discourage us when we're rejected on that, you know, grounds of, you know, who are you? Uh, you know, you have a poor family background, you have all this stuff going against you, but you are a child of God um, and nothing, no s amount of social stigma can change that. I'm, again, you brought up Mark chapter three earlier and there Jesus makes the point, you know, his, his family shows up at the beginning of that section saying, you're nuts, Jesus, and they're trying to get him to, to back <laughs> off. Toward the end of that section, they come back, they're trying to get a message to Jesus, they're on the outside, and Jesus says, you know, who who is my family? Who are my mother, brothers, sisters? He says, it's those who do the will of God. And, and here you mm -hmm. see that the people from his own town fall into that same sort of thinking. They, they think they know Jesus because they grew up with him. They know him maybe as Paul would say in Second Corinthians, they know Jesus according to the flesh, and that's how they're focusing on him, and, and even perhaps taking a shot at what they would consider his illegitimate birth. Uh, mm -hmm. But but again, that's, that's not the right way to judge Jesus. Uh, as you were talking, I was reminded of the parable that Jesus tells in Mark chapter 4, where he talks about the kingdom of God as a mustard seed. 
and mm-hmm. and a mustard seed looks unimpressive, and yet Jesus says, "Look, it's it's going to grow into this plant and provide shade and a place to dwell for all these birds." The people there in Nazareth are seeing Jesus simply as the mustard seed, the, this unimpressive little seed. What what is this? That's nothing. We know where you come from, Jesus, <laughs> and and they're not looking at him in faith. They've got the exact opposite, this unbelief that they're going to marvel at or that Jesus will even marvel at. So so there's the scene. Jesus is met with this just very deep rejection, sarcasm, social shaming. They take offense at him. They're, they're actually caused to stumble by what they see in Jesus. And Jesus speaks uh, what you might call it a proverb of sorts. A, pro- a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, which I think makes makes sense. If, if you go back to the place you grew up, they're going to see you as little Joel, <laughs> little Timmy. Nobody called me Timmy, but, 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 but that's how they'll, they'll see you. It, it's just hard for them to see someone change that position. And so a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. Makes sense. But in, on the lips of Jesus, who is in fact a prophet in the fullest sense, the fulfillment of all the prophets in the Old Testament, maybe there's a bit more we can say about what he's saying about himself. Yeah, so... He comes onto the scene and, and claims to be a prophet, which makes us think of Jesus' threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. We talk about that a lot with what he came to do. That's a great way to categorize it. And the, the prophet uh, office is on full display here. Um, and throughout the book of Mark, this is a big theme that what is Jesus you know, enacting as a prophet in this office? And um, a big theme in Mark's gospel and, and, you know, really all these gospels, but especially here is that Jesus is um, bringing the gracious reign and rule of God to um, his people through everything he's saying and everything he's doing. Um, So his prophetic office is coming and really um, doing the mighty deeds that he does to usher in God's reign uh, to decisively um, act against the powers of sin, death, and Satan. Um, So we see Jesus saying, you know, the reign of God is here, all the way back in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, where he says, repent uh, and believe in the good news because the reign of God is at hand. But then we see his deeds doing that too, where you just go back and we talked about Jesus healing the woman with the flow of blood and Jairus' daughter. These are the mighty deeds that Jesus is doing to show that, hey, I'm the son of God. I am the one who has been um, foreshadowed with the law and the prophets, and I'm on the scene um, enacting this. So that that's actually something that was really um, challenging for me to grasp when I was in seminary, because all these years I had heard this phrase, um, you know, as the kingdom of God uh, that Jesus is bringing, not the reign of God. That got me to think a little bit differently about it. But typically when people hear kingdom of God, you say, what does that mean? Uh, and I think there's there's a bit of a uh, maybe a geographical understanding, like it's a place that God is ruling over, or maybe even a, um, a castle. You know, we talked about there's yeah, a, there's a castle, yeah, <laughs> yeah, something like that. That's <laughs> finished. I like castles, um, <laughs> or even like a, a gathering of God's people, where you say we want to bring people into the kingdom, uh, so maybe into that group of people. But really, when you think about it. Uh, 
especially we talk about context all the time, but what does that phrase mean in the context of the Gospels? What are the Gospel writers, and, and primarily Jesus, showing this as? Uh, so I, I think this is a great way to think about it um, in terms of the way we were kind of taught at seminary, uh, um, but mostly based on what do we see happening in these Gospels. Uh, first of all, maybe a better way to understand it is is reign of God because it's more of a verbal idea than really a location. So it's when you think about a king who is reigning and ruling, what does that look like? Well, he's going out and conquering lands. He is, you know, uh, subduing his enemies. He is bringing, um, you know, provision to the poor, riches, food, whatever it is. He's establishing a good kingly rule. Uh, and I that's really a great way to think about what is Jesus doing here? Uh, God is breaking into history in Christ to not only conquer and judge his enemies, but also bring forth salvation to his people that's been promised from, you know, from the all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. God said, Jesus or this, you know, this Messiah is going to crush the head of the serpent. Um, and this is that happening right here. Um, another way to think about it is it's, it's here and now. It's not something that's distant and far off. We don't really need to think about it. You know, it's here in Jesus happening right now before your very eyes in this gospel. And it's another important aspect, as we'll see here, is it's coming in ways that people don't expect. Uh, we already see the flavor of this in chapter 6 where um, – if these people were expecting the Messiah, if they were thinking in terms of the Old Testament prophecies and all this, they're probably thinking this mighty, majestic person is going to come and, and save us from Roman rule. But here, what do they get? This is hometown kid, Jesus. Um, you know, we know who this is. He's not going to bring the reign of God. Um, and that's one of the reasons they take offense at him, because he's not what they want. He's not what they expect. And honestly, that that is a lot of the way that God works um, in his reign as he's establishing his reign on earth. He works through unexpected means to do his will, um, miracles, humility, submission, and ultimately the cross that Jesus has. Who would have thought that God would conquer sin, death, hell, and Satan through the utter humility of the cross? But that's exactly who God is, Um he does things his way uh, for his purposes, which are gracious and powerful. Um, and maybe the, the last couple things I'll say about this before we move on in terms of what is Jesus enacting as a prophet here? What is he doing? Um, he is bringing, we call it a now, not yet reality before us where uh, we'd say God's kingdom is here. God's reign is here in Jesus. He has conquered sin and death. He has brought us salvation. But the full, ultimate like, like fullness of that will not be experienced until uh, what we call the eschaton, the last, uh, the last day where Jesus will come again and usher in God's full reign and rule where sin and death will be completely eradicated um, and done away with live with God and his people in the new creation, which Paul really uh, gives us an exciting preview of in Romans chapter 8. Um, so that is to say that when we talk about Jesus as a prophet um, coming uh, among his people, he's bringing God's reign, he's doing the things that God prophesied and foreshadowed in the Old 
Testament. He's saying everything you heard about where your sins will be forgiven, death will be destroyed. I'm the one here that's doing that, that Jesus says. And some people are on board with that through God's gift of faith. Some people reject it. Uh, what should our response be? I think that's one of the things that Mark is teaching us here. We should not be ashamed of this prophet. Uh, we shouldn't reject him as these people um, do, but we should go back to one verses 14 and 15 and say, what is the response that Jesus calls for, for those people? Repentance and faith. Um, and since we have been given that gift of faith, um, we pray continually, Lord, your will be done. We die to sin each day and uh, rise through God's grace and forgiveness. We continually receive God's gifts in word and sacrament. And that's how God continues to keep us in that one truth that he's given us and keep us focused on that salvation and reign of God that he has brought through Jesus. So there's a, there's a lot there. Uh, and there's probably so much more that could be said about uh, what is Jesus enacting as um, our prophets and bringing the reign of God. But maybe the basic thing to remember is Jesus has come and conquered the power of sin and death through his own death and resurrection to deliver us from that. And now we continue to respond to it in repentance and faith, um, really unlike these these people here who are um, just you're like, I don't have any interest in this. I'm offended by you, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, the the rejection that he receives here in Nazareth, it, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem to rise to the level as, say, the scribes rose to when they said that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebul. And yet, mm-hmm. as we'll see, the reaction that Jesus has to this is is quite strong in terms of his response to their unbelief. What what seems innocent enough? Oh, Jesus, you're just a cute hometown kid. You know, you can go preach elsewhere, but don't. We we know you better than that. What seems mm-hmm. innocent enough is actually quite quite sinister. It's it's just rank unbelief and and is very serious. And, and we're going to see yeah. that in the way Jesus responds, which we'll pick up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, February 4th. We're studying Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. We've got Pastor Joel Heckman with us. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus preaching in Nazareth, his hometown, and how he's met with just terrible unbelief, a total rejection of who he is because they know him, they think. They grew up with this guy. He's the carpenter. How could he be this so important preacher? And Jesus says, you know, a prophet is not without honor. And we see just how serious this is as Mark describes it. He says that, that Jesus could do no mighty work there. 
except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus even marveled. He was surprised because of their unbelief. This verse five, particularly, I think is one of the more challenging verses in the gospel of Mark and in the gospels as a whole, where it says Jesus could do no mighty work there. I think it, it rises to that same level of challenge, which we'll come to later in Mark's gospel when Jesus is speaking about the last day and he says, only the father knows the last day and not the son. And we, we scratch our heads and say, well, Jesus is God. How could he not know when the last day is? And, and similarly here, Jesus is God. How is it possible that he could do no mighty work there? And the text says what it says. And we, we certainly wouldn't want to take a text like this and start to deny that Jesus is God or to, to sort of you know, pause it. Maybe Mark doesn't know what he's talking about or Mark doesn't have the, the same belief as, as, say, Matthew or Luke or something like that. We, those are certain boundaries that we can't cross because we know what Scripture testifies about who Jesus is as the Son of God. And yet we've seen this elsewhere in Mark where there's this sort of ambiguity in the way that he talks or he describes Jesus in these, these rather strange ways. We, we saw it actually yesterday in the way that Jesus is like, who touched me as if he didn't know and kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit at, at the way Jesus is portrayed here. So Jesus couldn't. How do, how do we how do we wrestle with that, Pastor Ackman? Well, it, it helps as you, you just did really to look at the wider context, I think, especially the immediate context of who touched me. Um, you know, the, the question maybe you see there, if you're just giving a casual reading is, you know, did Jesus really not know? Um, he's the son of God after all. Uh, um, but that's the way it comes to us. Uh, and Mark, um, in his portrayal, um, is not, you know, is not alone in this. I believe there's, there's similar reports in Matthew and maybe even Luke where you see this, this thing where you say, well, maybe he just phrased it wrong. You know, Jesus didn't want to do, um, good works there, or it wasn't part of Jesus' plan. But as I, I think our one of the commentaries I read pointed out well, you have to let the text just be what it is, not trying to rework it to make sense to you, which is a good reminder anytime you're reading scripture. When you come across something that doesn't make perfect sense, uh, it frustrates you or confuses you, um, don't try to min- manipulate it to make more sense. Just simply look at what does the context say? Uh, what are the details surrounding it? What does the rest of scripture say? So I think here, maybe the helpful thing would be looking at it as just a response to the people's unbelief. Um, they're rejecting him. They take offense at him and he couldn't do any mighty work there uh, because that was simply the response to that unbelief and that rejection. Now, it, it's interesting to point out too that he, it says he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few six sick people and healed them. So it wasn't as though he couldn't do anything at all. He did do some things there. Um, and it doesn't say anything about the people that were sick and got healed. So we can't read into that too much, but maybe, maybe a bigger part of it too, kind of on a more broad level is what is Mark trying to do here, uh, with this, you know, what the details he's giving of Jesus, he could have phrased it any way he wanted. He could have, um, given any of the details that he desired, but this is what the Holy Spirit moved him to do. Uh, so maybe that ambiguity is kind of pointing us to there are some things we just simply don't understand about the way Jesus works, uh, which is to be expected because, I mean, he's God. He is both truly God and truly man, 100% both. But we have to remember that uh, sometimes Jesus just does things that we don't have a complete grasp on, and that's that's not a problem. 
really. Uh, we, when we talk about um, how should we understand Christ, you know, both according to his human nature and his divine nature, we say we see what the text gives us, we see what is said about Jesus, and for those things that we do understand, we cling to those. You know, that Christ did die for our sins and was raised for our justification. Uh, he did miracles. He said he was the Son of God, and he was vindicated in those claims when he was raised from the dead. But then we come to passages like this where it says he could do no mighty work there. And maybe instead of, you know, trying to overparse it or try to draw something we don't fully understand it, uh, out of it, we'd say this is maybe just something we don't understand about Christ. It doesn't take away from his divinity uh, or his humanity. It's just this is how he responds to unbelief. Uh, not that he didn't desire to do things there. It's just he could not do it. Uh, so it, it's it's not a satisfying answer I, for a lot of people, and I wish I could, <laughs> I could give a little more clarity, uh, but that's simply saying, you know, it's one of the pastor's most uh, helpful phrases is, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know why he could do no mighty work there other than the fact that in this immediate context, there was unbelief and rejection. And maybe that's where we have to leave it and say, this is just the way Jesus works in this situation. And, and sometimes that is the, that's the wise answer. And I think, I think that does fit with the way Mark tends to speak, that he gives you the way that it, that it looks. I mean, you know, he was met with unbelief. So what? He couldn't do any miracles. That's that's what happens when there's unbelief. Jesus can't do miracles. And and even having said that though, he he does do a few. So I mean, it's not like it's not like the people of Nazareth were somehow forcing his hand or controlling him in a sense. Mm -hmm. But that is the response that unbelief gets from Jesus is it gets judgment. It gets no miracles. I I was trying to and and without doing too much, but it it reminds me a little bit of the way we talk in the catechism in the petitions of the Lord's prayer, particularly the first three where, where we say, Mm -hmm. for example, the kingdom of God with the second petition, the kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. And, And here you've got people who are certainly not praying that the kingdom of God would come to them. Now that doesn't stop Jesus from bringing the kingdom, but that unbelief means that the kingdom of God, well, can't, come to them which again like how do i understand that how do i fit that into various dogmatic categories which are good i'm not trying to cast any aspersion on them i'm not sure always but that's the way the text describes and i think i mean if if we let it stand like that it ought to it ought to scare us a little bit and and hopefully frighten us into un uh, into repentance where unbelief might be Mm mm-hmm and maybe that's one of Mark's intents here with that ambiguity is, ambiguity is um, you know, put yourselves in those people's, sh- people's shoes or, you know, you're hearing this story, you're seeing what Jesus is doing, what is your response going to be? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think, I just thought of this, we have, we have to be kind of careful too, is that there's some, sometimes people hear, you know, there's no good things being done in your life or no, you know, miracles, quote unquote, uh, or your prayers not being answered because you didn't believe enough. Right. Uh, we want to be, I, I think some people might see this and say, well, maybe I need to believe harder. But a, a good reminder is this is not a, you know, a, a weak faith, so so to speak. It's a, a complete lack of faith. Right. Um, just like we see in Jesus, um, I think it was Jesus calming the storm. I don't remember exactly where that was, but uh, he says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Uh, But he still did that mighty work among them. 
Um, so it's important to remember our, you know, what Jesus does among us is not based on, oh, you have great faith, but you, you know, you on the other hand over here, uh, you're not believing hard enough or praying hard enough. It's, we pray God's will is done. Uh, we know it's done apart from our prayers, Luther says, but we pray it be done among us also. And what exactly that is, we're not sure, you know, we, we don't really know why the things that happen here happens. We don't always know what to expect. Uh, from God. We just simply trust that what we will receive is our daily bread um, at the right time um, and that the Lord uh, does nothing um, to harm us. He does everything for our good. And uh, we leave, you know, we, maybe we leave it at that when we approach passages like this. That's right. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's a very wise approach is to, to be careful not to say more or less than the text says. And, and the text mm-hmm. says what it says. And, and we know from the rest of the text of Mark and the rest of scripture, what are certain lines that we can't cross? And so we're not going to cross those, but we want to let the text speak. And I think the strong warning mm-hmm. against unbelief. And again, with the, the important, the important reminder that you gave us there concerning, we want don't want to go too far the other way. Uh, that's, that's what the text says. And so, Mm-hmm. Unbelief is serious. As you said at the very beginning, we shouldn't be surprised by unbelief, but we should be concerned about it. And and here is great cause for concern there in Nazareth. So mm-hmm. that's what Jesus has faced in his hometown. He's bringing the kingdom of God, but it's not received there. So what happens? Well, he sends his 12 out. And this brings us to that second scene, which as we said at the beginning, is the middle of this sandwich that Mark is putting together for us. We've got rejection, the disciples being sent tomorrow. We're going to talk about another rejection, John the Baptist being killed. So we've got scene number two here in our text for today. This is Mark six, beginning at verse seven. And Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Mark 6, verses 7 through 13. So, Pastor Eggman, Jesus sends out his 12. We heard about their calling back in chapter 3, right around that same time where some of that opposition to Jesus from his family was happening. Here the 12 come back into view. Jesus sends them out with authority that sounds a lot like the authority that he has. One of the things that stands out is what he tells them to, to take along, almost, almost empty-handed. They can wear sandals, but not two tunics, only one. Why, why, Jesus, why does he send them out like this? Yeah, so I thought, you know, if they were, uh, I did my vicarage up in Kalispell, Montana, and I thought if I started out on a hike, <laughs> you know, got Glacier Park 30 miles away, if I started on a hike like this uh i don't know if i'd make it back (laughs) um so he's sending them out and i I think the point of this is to counter this attitude of self-sufficiency um an interesting point that one of the commentators brought up as i was looking at this um never would have thought of this but there's a group of philosophers known as the cynics uh we're pretty familiar with that word cynicism but where does it come from well a guy named uh diogenes i'm probably botching that pronunciation, but um, it was a 4th century philosophy back 4th century BC, and of all the things that was a hallmark of cynicism, self-sufficiency was one of them. Um, And there's actually uh, a letter that uh, this founder, Diogenes, sends to his father that says, actually, almost in perfect 
parallel to this. Uh, he took with him two cloaks or a double cloak, I think it says, and then a bag and a staff. Um, and he says, uh, take a staff and a sandals and one tunic here. So it's almost as though Mark, um, you know, records these words with that in mind where, um, you know, the rest of the world, when they're going about their lives, tends to put a lot of dependence on themselves, their material blessings or their good health or what have you, their social standing, all these things. But when Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, um, he, I believe, is directing them to be dependent on the Lord and his promises to carry them through this difficult road they have. Um, and really, I think ultimately it's driving them to be in community with other people, not just don't rely on yourself, but rely on the other people that God has placed in this creation with you, uh, which is, a, I think it's a constant temptation of ours to try to go it alone in life. Uh, we have that sinful pride within us that says asking for help is a weakness. Uh, which is absolutely not true. We say, I don't need anyone else to accomplish my goals or go along in life. Uh, but that that is that is from Satan. It's not from God. Uh, Satan always is driving us to isolation. It's harder to fight temptation in isolation. It's harder to grow in our faith in isolation. I would say almost impossible, really, uh, because if you're apart from the church, um, you're really kind of starving yourself of God's gifts and his His teaching and his community that he's given you. Uh, so you might say this passage is, you know, with Jesus sending out the disciples the way he does, uh, he's calling, you know, maybe especially pastors could I identify with this, but really all God's people, um, you know, dependence on your own strength, on your own, um, you know, your own resources and energies, which are finite, will ultimately lead to things like burnout, depression, despair, all these things if you rely on yourself. But um, being in community with God's people, uh, relying on God's gifts of prayer and word and sacrament and fellow Christians, those are the things that uh, free us from this fruitless self-sufficiency and really um, puts us in a place where, you know, we say, yeah, I'm insufficient, but the Lord is sufficient through his people and through his gifts. And I think I, I immediately thought of Second uh, Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, where Paul is saying, you know, we despaired of life itself. Our challenges were so great. And I, I imagine, you know, in this past year, even in, in 2021 a little bit, may, maybe people have thought that way. You know, we're despairing of life itself. It's been so hard in so many ways. But then what does Paul say? He says, uh, the Lord gave us these difficulties in order that we might rely on him instead of ourselves who raises the dead. And, and I think it's important that he puts on that last part, not just rely on God, but God who raises the dead. Uh, because if God can raise the dead, um, you know, surely he can provide for us in these other areas. And that's the whole point. God can and has and does and will raise the dead. And he also will give us our daily bread. Um, and I, I believe that's the attitude that, that he um, is giving his disciples here. Just trust me. It's going to be hard, but I'm with you. And and all I'm sending with you is my word and my authority. And that's really all you need. And and sandals and a cloak and a staff. But <laughs> well, <laughs> but I think I, mean, that's, that's, I think that's well said. And it, again, it, what's astounding about it is that he does this right after he's been rejected. It, you kind of, you know, what what reception did he just receive in his own hometown? It certainly wasn't a welcome that would have, I mean, maybe they would have provided him, I guess, a meal 
but but they didn't <laughs> they didn't welcome him into their house like like Jesus will say in verse 10 you know when you enter a house stay there until you depart from there that this this provision will come from God's own people from those who hear the the word it really does put the emphasis on a trust in Christ that he will do what he says through his word. I, I'm reminded again of those parables that are there in Mark four, the parable of the sower that, you know, the word gets scattered and there's a lot of rejection, but fruit does get, get does get produced. And, and the disciples will be provided through that fruit as it is producing God's people or the parable of the seed that gets planted and the farmer doesn't know how it grows, but it does. And, and same mm-hmm. for the disciples, like they're going to go out here in the midst of a world where the prophet gets rejected like Jesus was. And yet, even apart from them understanding how they're going to be provided for by the God who raises from the dead. It is a, a fantastic amount of, of trust that Jesus is giving to his disciples here that, that he would commend this to them to, this is what it means to live by faith as my disciples to go out trusting that I will provide for you through the word that you're going to the preach and that word will bear fruit, which I think is, is where verse 10 and 11 comes in, where Jesus actually speaks. Mm-hmm. He says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So there is this thought that people will hear, they will believe, they will provide for you. Some will not, though. And for those, Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. What is what is Jesus actually, what's this charge that he gives there in verses 10 and 11? So this is a, a gesture that, uh, here, here's how... Um, uh, this is a former professor at Concordia Seminary where we attended. Jim Veltz, James Veltz, uh, says this in his commentary, to shake dust off is a great insult. It indicates that the person is unwilling to be touched by what others touched. And further, it serves as a warning. You have rejected our preaching. Therefore, you and all that's yours are without the reign and rule of God, and we will not be associated with that. So this actually does echo to... Um, I flip through here. I, I believe it's, I want to say 1 Corinthians 5, if I have that right, where Paul's talking about church discipline. Um, not a very popular topic <laughs> um, to talk about, yeah. not all, you know, sunshine and roses, but it's, it's a very important one nonetheless. And I think that is a, a little bit of what's happening here is almost not quite church discipline because these people aren't necessarily in the reign of God, but saying that there are consequences for rejection. Um, We are bringing you the good news of God's reign in Christ. And if you don't want anything to do with it, then we really don't want anything to do with you. Now, taking this the wrong way, you would say, oh, what a hateful thing to do. You know, why wouldn't you stay there and keep trying with them? Why wouldn't you um, say things a little bit you know, with with not as much of an insult as shaking the dust off your feet. But I think it's to emphasize a couple things. First, um, the seriousness of rejecting this is we are going to leave you all together. Uh, but, but also, this is meant to bring people to repentance, um, to say, this is such a serious thing. We, we need to do something that really emphasizes that. And that's kind of the same idea with church discipline. Uh, it is not done out of anger or hatred or bitterness. It's done out of love for this person who is caught in sin. Um, they're unwilling to repent um, and respond to this preaching. So what do you do? You say, we are going to um, you know, take action not to... Uh, hurt you, but ultimately to bring you back to where you need to be, um, to show you that this is so serious, you can't be counted among God's people. 
ultimately for God to work through that and bring you back into the congregation of believers. That's the whole idea with, you know, something like excommunication, something like closed communion. Uh, If you deny the Lord's Supper, um, that's certainly one of the things you're intending to do is to bring someone to repentance. And I think that's part of it here. Um, We we don't want to go about preaching the reign of God and spreading it with an antagonistic attitude. Like, well, you don't want anything to do with this. Well, you know, I don't want anything to do with you, you jerk, or something like that, where we have a very, um, you, you might say that the temperature is very high right now, <laughs> right. Um, not just in our country, but, you know, even, you know, it can be that way among, um, you know, when you're trying to share your faith, it's, you know, oh, you're rejecting me? Well, you fool, you moron. How in the world could you reject this? But the the point is um, not to say, you know, what an idiot you are. It's to say, okay, well, I did what God called me to do, and now I have other people to spread this message to. Um, you know, I'm not going to spend any more time here, but I'm not doing that because I hate you. I'm doing it because I want you to see this is something that's a matter of life and death. Um, it's not just this nice fairy tale that some people characterize it as. It's, you know, your eternal salvation is at stake here. Um, And it's another reminder too, um, and this is something it took some getting used to for me as I've, you know, there's been only a handful of times I can remember where I've, you know, been at a coffee shop or, you know, just in, in a public setting and I've had to share my faith and I've been met with, you know, not insults, but, but ultimately rejection. And I'm like, oh man, I hate this. You know, why is this happening to me? Uh, but then I keep thinking, you know, this is what happened to Jesus. This is what happened to his disciples that he sent out. Uh, why would it, why should I expect myself to be above something like that? You know, so it, it shapes your expectations, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier. You know, there will be a rejection beautiful and powerful and wonderful as this message is, the heartbreaking part of it is some people are just not going to respond in faith. Um, But the key is to remain faithful and patient and gentle, uh, to continue to proclaim what we've been called to proclaim, where we've been placed. You know, as pastors, we're in a particular place uh, called by God in a particular church. But for people, you know, it's, it's really proclaiming that reign of God where God has placed you um, as part of your vocation and understanding there's there's going to be some uncomfortable parts of it, but don't don't be discouraged. Um, just say, okay, I did what God has called me to do, and it's it's up to Him to work that faith now, not me. Um, and you don't look at you know numerical re- results for comfort or, hey, this person had a glowing response. You just trust God is working through this word, and I just need to leave it at that. Mm-hmm. That that's the the sower again coming through that mm-hmm. he he sows the seed, and that's what Jesus does in in his proclamation of the world word. And that's what he sends his disciples to do as well. And yeah, part of that proclamation is uncomfortable, this shaking off the dust that's on your feet, but it is done, as you said, with the purpose of yet another preaching that's intended to drive to repentance, that Mm -hmm. that a person would see just how serious a matter it is to reject this reign of God and what that means. And in hopes of, of actually bringing that person through the word into saving faith in Christ, 
Pastor Agma, we got just about three minutes here on the morning, and the disciples. Uh, this I think is is fantastic. They actually go out and do it. They they go out, they proclaim repentance, they cast out demons, mm-hmm. they anoint with oil those who are sick, they heal them. This is this is fantastic, uh, especially considering that the picture that we get of Jesus' disciples, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, is not always very positive. But here, the the <laughs> word is at work to do the work, which I think is is just a fantastic testimony that Jesus sends them out with this promise that calls for faith and he, he makes good on it. He does what he says he's going to do. So with, with, you know, about two and a half minutes now, I suppose, uh, just give us closing thoughts on this text. Good news. I know we've talked, it's been, there's been some pretty dark moments, but, but the good news from this text here in Mark six. Yeah. And maybe central to it, maybe a, a nice note that sums it up or closes it out. Well, would be, um, the authority of Jesus and his word that go with his disciples and accomplish all these things. It's not the, again, it's not the self-sufficiency of the disciples. It's not their ability. As you said, their understanding of Jesus is quite limited at this point. It's not a hundred percent clear. They know there's something about him and they're by faith, they're doing what he's telling them here, but they still had a lot to figure out. They were sinners um, just like you and I, Uh, we see, this same uh, lack of understanding in, you know, even Peter himself, um, you know, when he says one verse, you are the Christ, the son of God. And then Jesus tells him how he's going to die. And a couple of verses later, it's like, nope, you can't die like that. Um, but then what happens is Jesus continues to work through these sinners um, to do his good and gracious will. And that's really the reality of discipleship. Um, we're sinners through whom the Lord works and uh, we rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And um, we don't look to our own ability, our own, you know, eloquence or uh, charisma or anything like that. We, re- we rely solely on God's word, which is uh, completely efficacious. It does what God intends. Um, our job is to proclaim it faithfully in our vocations. And when that happens, um, God does wonderful things through that. Um, and even when there is rejection, that's, that's a heartbreaking part of it. But, um, don't doubt that, you know, what you do as God's child now could, you know, God could use that for something years down the road that you don't even see. Um, that's a big discouragement that pastors have is sometimes when we proclaim the word, when we confront people who need to change, um, sometimes those results we don't even see in our lifetime, but that, you know, I've heard stories of pastors who say I confronted someone about a sin and then, you know, 15, 20 years later, um, I got a call saying, thank you for bringing me the word of God. I see now what you were trying to do and, and there, God has worked that repentance and faith over the course of, you know, so many years. So, um, big thing to remember is, you know, the proper response to Jesus is repentance and faith. And as his disciples, uh, we go out with not a whole lot, but we go out with the most important thing. And that's the word of God, which is powerful and it's working. Pastor Joel Heckman is the pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma, helping us this morning with Mark chapter six, verses one through 13. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much, Pastor Tim. It's always an honor. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 6 or the Gospel of Mark, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Thanks for listening this morning. Talk to you again tomorrow.